Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host, Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, greetings to you, sir, from the 49th state. I'm back in Alaska for a few weeks, which, as you know, much as I love my little life in rural Vermont, Alaska is my happy place. Um, but one of the reasons I stopped living here was it's just so damn far from everywhere, basically. And it actually feels even farther when, as happened on this trip, one of your connections is late because of storms and you have to spend a night in Charlotte, which keen observers will note, even to begin with, is not exactly on a direct great circle route from Vermont to Alaska. And while you're spending the night in Charlotte, your bag is continuing on to Chicago. Anyway, the point of all this, my plan had been, it was all perfect. I was going to arrive in Anchorage on Friday night, spend Saturday kind of dealing with, you know, jet lag and then doing prepping. And then I would watch Bivol Canelo and be ready in plenty of time for a Sunday recording. But in the event, I was still flying to Alaska when Bivol and Canelo got into the ring. And I was praying to the flight gods that the onboard Wi-Fi was going to be good enough to enable me to watch the fight. And it was until it wasn't. And then it was. Um, I made it through the ring entrances, and David Diamante was getting very excited. And then, boom, out it went. No Wi-Fi at all. Couldn't even follow the fight on Twitter. Had no idea what was happening. And then suddenly, from round six, in it came again. And I was able to see the rest of the fight live and ended up catching the opening half of the bout on Sunday morning. So, for those who are listening, I'm not going to offer any how I scored the fight or anything like that because I saw the fight out of sequence and actually saw half of it after I knew what the result was. Um... But the good news is I'll be out here in the last frontier for another couple of weeks. So who knows what, what excitement and shenanigans we'll get up to over the next couple of podcasts and, yes. and how we'll have to work around my schedule. <laughs> right. Well, well, we'll make it work. And uh, I, I know it wasn't uh, easy getting there. A bit of an adventure as you connected through Ecuador on your 12th stopover <laughs> to get to Alaska. But now you're there. And now it's me who is jealous of you because boxing main events will start at like 6 p.m. for you the next oh, couple of weeks. Yes, that is the best. <laughs> I mean, meanwhile, here on the East Coast, you know, Bivol Canelo, the pay-per-view started at eight. That sounded encouraging. And uh, the opening bout ended in the first round. And they still found a way for the main event to go until a yeah. little past 1230. These yeah. heartless, soulless monsters, the people who do this to us. Exactly. Or, I shouldn't say to us, to, to me, not to us for the next couple of weeks, at least. Um, the downside for you will be you'll be ready to record at like 10 a.m. on the Sunday and I'll just be slowly getting out of bed and you'll be waiting for me to have my breakfast and my coffee and you know half your sunday you'll be gone waiting for me to actually basically that again works out for me yes <laughs> it's quite inequitable uh, really this whole <laughs> this whole setup we have going here so yeah i do i do have that tiny bit of jealousy certainly but i don't envy your journey that that must have sucked but uh, then again you did make it through three separate flights and uh, never once, not on any of them, did you get your ass kicked by Mike Tyson. So there's that. <laughs> exactly. Nor did I try to provoke him, of course, which is right. key to not getting your ass kicked by <laughs> right. Mike Tyson. Step, step one, in term, if the goal <laughs> is not to get your ass kicked by Mike Tyson, step one, don't antagonize <laughs> Mike Tyson. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Look, this week on the podcast, we have quite a bit to look ahead to and to deal with. Uh, we will take an in-depth look at a rematch we've been eagerly anticipating for the last 10 months for the undisputed 154 pound championship of the world jamel charlo versus brian castanio two uh their first fight was a 12 round split draw they will try again saturday to give us a winner and a champion eric and i will break down the entire showtime championship boxing triple header and make our predictions we also have news to cover the tweet of the week 
a game of Make the Match, and Eric will give me a top five challenge. But we have to start with the massive upset in Las Vegas. Canelo Alvarez sat atop almost every pound-for-pound list heading into the weekend, but not anymore, as the determined Dimitri Bivol handed boxing's biggest star his first loss in nearly nine years on Saturday night at the T-Mobile Arena, Eric. Yeah, not since he fought Floyd Mayweather when he was just 23 years old has Canelo tasted defeat. Some will argue he should have in one or both of the Gennady Golovkin fights, but the judges came through for him in those. Against Bivol, however, the best the judges could do for Canelo was to make the scores uncomfortably close. Uh, Steve Weisfeld, Tim Cheatham, and Dave Moretti each scored it 115-113, seven rounds to five for Dimitri Bivol, who advances to 20-0 with 11 knockouts and retains his light heavyweight belt, while Canelo Alvarez slips to 57-2-2 with 39 KOs. Alvarez came out more aggressively than usual, as if believing he would walk right through Bivol, but the Russian fighter was sharp. He used his jab, he controlled the distance, he landed right hands, and he never seemed bothered by Canelo's power, while Canelo's defense was nowhere near as effective as it usually is. As a result, Bivol piled up points, and in the second half of the fight, Canelo looked at times frustrated, at times even resigned to defeat, maybe. I scored at 116-112 and thought that felt a little close. The judges, of course, ran even closer. Uh, Kieran, what did you see as the key or keys to Bivol pulling off this upset? Well, let me start by noting uh, my tweet of the week, uh, which um, shows that there were some who anticipated this very scenario or something very close to it, uh, including our perceptive friend uh, Lee Groves of CompuBox, Mm. uh, who tweeted after the final bell, but before the cards were read out, my scorecard reads 117-111 Bivol. I have said that Bivol is the kind of fighter that could spark Canelo is getting old talk. At times, he, as in Canelo, looks shopworn and at a loss for answers. If Bivol gets this verdict, he should get full credit for imposing his talent and keeping poise. Um, indeed so. Uh, by the way, we should have Lee back on the podcast. He was great when yeah. we had him on to talk Muhammad Ali on the old HBO pod. And seeing that tweet made me think, oh, yeah, you know what? We should have him back on. Um, within this tweet, there, there's a couple of nuggets that are well worth unpacking. Um, and one is how Canelo looked. Uh, let's focus on that a little bit. And, and you talked about this, too. He just looked sluggish and oddly out of sorts and 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 almost like puzzled by by what was in front of him. Um, you know, you could ask, and I, and I know that plenty of people have, whether the weight was a factor, whether Canelo just bit off more than he could chew, whether it's one thing moving to 175 to take on a fading Sergei Kovalev and another thing entirely facing it in his prime Dmitry Bivol. But... Bivol's size wasn't the issue here, although he had that slight reach advantage that helped him Mm -hmm. execute his game plan. But he's he's used to that, Canelo. He's been up against that before. If weight was an issue, it may have been a... Although the division was a factor, it may have been in the sense that maybe Canelo bulked up too much, that in becoming increasingly reliant on his power, maybe he's lost some of the skills that helped him get where he is or, or where he was before Saturday night. He looked gassed early as well, I thought. And interestingly, whereas he has of late come on strong down the stretch, the extent that we sort of expect him to give away the first five rounds and then and then come on strong and win, that didn't happen here. It's the opposite, if anything. He looked brighter early. By the mid-rounds, was looking lost. He had, what, a mini comeback in round nine and perhaps round 11. There was nothing like enough. I, I do wonder if an element of it was that he's just gotten too bulky and too in love with it with his power punches. 
He's always also been selective in his punches. He's been content to be this kind of power counterpuncher, hasn't he? Right. Uh, and, and at times, sometimes too much so. And and when things started to go south against Bivol, he tried to call up that card again. He was retreating to the ropes, trying to beat, bait Bivol in the hope of being able to counter him and break him down. But Bivol didn't fall for it. He was cagey when he did move in. He opened up when he had the opportunity and moved swiftly out of the way when he anticipated Canelo being about to throw. I mean... Honestly, you know, from the Canelo perspective, even though it sort of looked at times like, oh, gosh, is Canelo getting old overnight? It wasn't that. It was somebody who's found a very successful blueprint for winning very big fights and, and has, who has come to rely on it, coming up against someone who had also studied that blueprint and decided to rip it up. Mm. Um, you know, and, you know, add to that the fact that, yeah, you know, maybe Bivol being a strong light heavyweight, those punches he was landing on Canelo probably had that extra bit of sting than he's used to. But, you know, the emphasis really here should be on what Bivol did right. And, and the mistake that I made when I didn't entirely dismiss his chances, but somewhat did, was what I thought would work against him actually turned out to be what worked really strongly in his favor. So he's an unusual boxer for someone who's more of a boxer than a fighter and that he's technically proficient, but not necessarily a great mover. And I sort of touched on this last week. He isn't the kind of boxer who necessarily glides around the ring. who's elusive. And I thought that would be a problem down the stretch. I figured he needed to keep touching and turning Canelo, but instead he relied on those straight punches to land between Canelo's wider power shots. He relied on his hand speed to beat Canelo to the punch. And, and whereas Canelo was looking for opportunities to launch those power shots as counters, Bivol was waiting for a sign. There must've been some tell that he saw that he was able to react with and then fired off those straight punches down in the middle. He outsped him. He outworked him. Mm -hmm. Not only did he not turn and move, he stood in the pocket. He walked toward Canelo at times, figuring that that medium space was where he didn't want to be. So it was safer to just get inside Canelo's punches and fire those straight punches of, of, of his own. And also the other thing you got to give him credit for is his toughness. I mean, apart from anything else, Canelo tried to do to Bivol what he did to Callum Smith beating the hell out of his left arm to try to make him drop it. And Bivol made some comment about that afterwards. Like, yeah, my arm really hurts. <laughs> right. but, but he didn't budge. He stuck in there. This was, I didn't know that Dimitri Bivol had this in him, actually. And he really, really impressed me. It was almost Buster Douglas, Mike Tyson-ish in that, obviously, Bivol was a far better fighter going in than Buster Douglas. But this was a sense of, somebody really, really being given the really big up uh, occasion and really, really rising to it. And I think producing the best performance I've ever seen out of Dimitri Bivol on the biggest stage that he's had one. Yeah, certainly uh, agree on that last point. And I, I agree with a lot of what you said, maybe some slightly different observations with some of the, the details of it, but the, sure. the big overarching point of yours uh, in, in terms of what to emphasize here, which fighter to emphasize, you know, that, it's not that Canelo stunk or, or that his effort right. was lacking. I do think he had the wrong game plan, but yep. but the thing really to emphasize is that if indeed he bit off more than he could chew, that means Dimitri Bivol was more than he could chew, and Dimitri right. Bivol deserves that credit for winning the fight, I think more so than Canelo deserves criticism for losing the fight. Um, I didn't see any signs of Canelo growing old or being shop worn or yeah. I, I don't think it was anything like that. I said before the fight that I would favor Bivol against anyone 168 or below except Canelo. I was wrong about the except Canelo, but I feel good about the rest. He, he's a tremendous fighter and he boxed about as well as anyone could have dreamed he would. And he looked so good 
that I'm only half kidding if I throw out the conspiracy theory that Bivol has been tanking, has been hustling <laughs> us for like the last four years just so that some superstar like Canelo would think, oh, this guy's pretty basic. He's passive. He doesn't have another gear. I like this matchup. Um, this is kind of the Bivol that we thought Bivol was after he knocked out Sullivan Barrera. Yes. But that we haven't seen since then. Yeah. His six fights in the interim, five were pretty boring one-sided wins, and one was a boring narrow escape over Craig Richards. Um, it's like we knew he had something like this in him, but we doubted that he could possibly deliver on his promise after what we've seen the last few years. But he sure did deliver, and he deserves a ton of credit rather than having us focus on whether Canelo was overrated or undersized or is getting washed or whatever. Um, but that said, Canelo's approach to this fight kind of sucked. Um, yeah. The one good tactic, I punching the, sh the left shoulder with the right hand, I thought that was a, a good approach. But otherwise, he was really loading up on everything. He mm -hmm. was looking for the knockout rather than looking to box effectively. Canelo's been knocking guys out lately, and I think you used the phrase uh, falling in love with his power. Yep. Uh, it, it appears that that's what's happening here, and uh, he assumed his punch would be too much, even for a full 175-pounder, ignoring that when that worked against Sergei Kovalev, Kovalev had been stopped a couple of times already, had gotten shinny, and was clearly past his prime, and none of those descriptors applies to Bivol. Um, another thing Canelo did wrong, as you touched on, he was playing defense along the ropes, as he sometimes does. But let's give Bivol the credit here. He really knew how to take advantage. He had yep. the length and the hand speed to land shots and not get countered too badly and maintain just the right distance. Um, by the eighth round, that moment when Bivol pulled Canelo down, Canelo mm -hmm. went down the canvas. Obviously, it was a slip. No, Nothing even close to a knockdown, but it was a clear sign that Canelo was tiring. And then Canelo had sort of a last stand in the ninth round, but not much left to give after that. Um, I do want to comment on the scoring. Canelo swept the first four rounds on all three cards and would have gotten a draw if he'd won the 12th on at least two cards, which seems crazy. But the judges scored every round identically, all 12. Mm. I can't remember the last time that happened in a fight like this. So maybe this fight just looked a tiny bit different up close and in person than it did on TV or, or 10 rows back in the press section or whatever. It kind of feels less like judges trying to help Canelo out and give him the close rounds and more like judges seeing something different than we saw in those early rounds. Because uh, those four, first four rounds, those are pretty much the only place they really diverged from the public. Most right. of the public had it 2-2 or 3-1 Bivol after four. The judges all had it 4-0 Canelo. That's where the difference is. And so it, I'm thinking it was probably just something different about the way the fight looked up close at the mm -hmm. beginning. Um, one other note that we should talk about. Did you see Floyd Mayweather posted a, a winning bet ticket? Yeah, so he had $10,000 on Bivol at plus 425, winning $42,500. Good win. That buys a lot of pizza even even with all this inflation caused by <laughs> hunter biden's laptop or whatever that's a lot of pizza um but i bet just about anything that floyd has been betting on canelo's opponent every time since they fought and he lost 16 <laughs> straight bets and maybe 160 grand or something on him before winning this one and just didn't post those tickets that that would be my guess here yeah that could be right that could be right <laughs> um so anyway yeah we, we we wanted to put the emphasis on people but nonetheless 
the, the big issue or one of the big issues uh, is what's next for Canelo and yeah. the options have changed for him. Um, before this fight, it was assumed he would win and then face Gennady Golovkin um, for the third time in September. There was even some talk during fight week about Canelo versus Alexander Usyk. Um, look, now, the Usyk idea is clearly off the table, if it was ever really on the table. Um, Canelo and Bivol both said in the immediate aftermath that they want to do a rematch. Well, there was a little bit of prevaricating a bit later on, you know, Bivol saying that he wanted to make sure that the terms of the rematch reflected the fact that he was now, that he was the champion and so on and so forth. So is that what you expect will happen next? Would anything be different the next time if it is indeed what happens next? Yeah, I, I do expect that we'll see Bivol Alvarez too in September. As, as you said, Bivol talked about wanting to be treated as the champion, so it's possible that he'll kind of negotiate his way out of the fight if he's looking for something close to a 50-50 split when Canelo, despite losing, is clearly still the superstar attraction. Um, it's also possible that someone in Canelo's team will try to talk him into Triple G, into right. beating up Golovkin for relatively easy money instead of risking a second loss in a row. And, hey, you know, maybe you can come back to Bivol next year something like that. I, I wouldn't rule that out, but I would still wager that it's likely Bivol Alvarez 2 next and whatever this one sold on pay-per-view, it'll sell more next time. Yeah. Uh, and I do think the fight can be different next time and Canelo can win it. I would guess that the odds would open around even um, and maybe it even works its way toward Canelo getting bet on enough to become a slight favorite. I mean, consider how late it took into this fight. It was about eight rounds or so before the mm -hmm. in-fight odds started to favor Bevel. Um But I'd expect Canelo to have a different game plan to get on his toes and box and move more mixed with moments of maybe getting all the way inside and staying inside, trying to outfight Bivol at close range where Bivol can't get much leverage on his punches. I think it's a very winnable fight for Canelo. He's going to be furious to have lost, I think, and yes. he's going to push himself in every possible way to avenge it. So while Bivol is a really tough style and he has the size and the talent to give Canelo hell again, I absolutely believe that if they have a rematch, even if Bivol does repeat the victory, I think the rhythms of the fight will look very different the second time around. Um, what about you? What, what do you think about a rematch? And do you suspect Triple G was watching this happy because he got to watch his hated enemy Canelo lose or sad because he's now much less likely to ever get that third crack at him? So, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you that I feel like the, the Bivol rematch feels like the obvious thing to do, unless... Canelo or his team, you know, accept or promulgate the narrative to the effect of, yeah, I, I went too far. I, mm. I bit off more than I could chew. 175 isn't really for me. I'll stay at 168 and finish Golovkin. And he could do that. But I, I agree with you that that doesn't feel very much like Canelo's MO. Mm -hmm. um, I agree with you that it might be the, the, the what some of his people around him want him to do. But yeah, he feels to me like he's more likely to want to retool and learn from his mistakes and try again. I don't see Canelo being the kind of guy who's just going to leave that hanging out there. Right. It just doesn't feel like him. Um, and I do think there would be some interest in seeing, you know, Canelo begin a fight week as the dog, um, you know, and like you said, you know, maybe the betting would change and, and he'd move up to be a favorite by the end. But yeah, I definitely think there'd be some interest in that. Um, you know, meanwhile, you know, Bivol's going to be looking to double down on his win and establish his, his own, pound for pound bona fides and mm -hmm. 
you know, it's a curious place as fighter of the year for which he is right. presently the front runner. Right. Um, as for Golovkin, look, he hates Canelo with a passion. He hates everything that Canelo has done to him and to his career. Um, he hates the fact that he feels he was robbed of a win in their first fight. Um, you know, he suspects that Canelo was juiced for that fight. He's still furious for Canelo causing the rematch to be postponed. He's bitter about what he perceived as a lack of support from HBO when it came to finding him a replacement opponent when um, that, that rematch was postponed. Then he feels he was robbed again in the rematch. Uh, while Canelo's been earning mega millions from high-profile fights since then, he's had to deal with the likes of you know, Steve Rolls and Rio de Murata, and he's been almost forgotten. So, yeah, I'm sure he enjoyed some schadenfreude at seeing Canelo become unstuck. Right. But the fact of the matter is, it might have messed up his career again. Yeah. Um, you tweeted in the immediate aftermath that Canelo's loss oddly makes a third Golovkin fight weirdly more viable. And there's a lot of truth in that. Um, you know, in the sense that Canelo looking vulnerable theoretically raises the intrigue factor. I'm not sure that it makes a great difference when the bell rings for how a Canelo Golovkin three would go. And I don't think it affects how Golovkin feels a Canelo Golovkin three would go. I mean, he still feels he's two and O against the guy. Um, the, you know, the one issue is, is it as sellable unless Canelo reestablishes himself first? Like is Canelo right. Golovkin three more sellable with Canelo vulnerable or more after he's kind of got his feet back under him again? I, I don't know. Right. We'll have to wait for the dust to settle. But right now, I hate to say it, my hunch is that Golovkin's going to end up feeling screwed again, to be honest with you. Yeah, most likely. And and just to double back to you mentioning the fighter of the year angle here with Bivol, which I hadn't been thinking about at all yet. But now that you've mentioned it, I think he's almost certainly going to need to double down and beat Canelo a second time. Because if Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford fight... right. Whoever wins that has the inside track over a Bivol who beat Canelo once. If Bivol beats Canelo twice, that might trump the yes. winner of Spence Crawford. But otherwise, winner of Spence Crawford, I think, has the pole position, probably. Right. He's probably looking pretty good for upset of the year right now. I yes, think. I would say it's the leader in that regard right now, yes. We're not having a bad year, are we, so far? <laughs> it's been all right. It's been all right. It's all right. Not, not, not so much for Canelo Alvarez, but not so for us as fans and podcasters, a lot to talk about. Yeah, he's crying into his golden pillow. <laughs> right, that's true. He's fine. He'll be okay. Yes. He'll, yeah, he'll be just fine. Um, all right, let's move along from the at least temporary fall of the pound for pound king to a battle who to determine who will be king at 154 pounds. This coming Saturday night, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, at 6 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. in Alaska, <laughs> um, on Showtime from Dignity Health Sports Park in Carson, California, it's Jamel Charlo. Brian Castanio, too, for all the belts. They faced off with the same prizes at stake last July 17th. They produced one of the very best fights of the year. Charlo hurt Castanio in the second round, but Castanio recovered and appeared to build a sizable lead before Charlo hurt the Argentine again in round 10, swept the last three rounds on all cards to pull out a split draw. So the 31-year-old Charlo is now 34-1-1 one one with 18 KOs. The 32-year-old Castanio is 17-0-2, with 12 KOs. And the conventional wisdom heading into this rematch is that Charlo has more room for improvement over his performance in the first fight. Do you agree with that conventional wisdom? Yeah, I do, but. There's a but. He he has more room for improvement, but he will need to improve to win because one thing about Castaño is he's not the type of fighter to ever underperform. He's so yeah. steady, so consistent, so relentless 
what we saw from him in the first fight is almost certainly what we'll see again in the second fight. Whereas Charlo, yeah, he can start faster, he can move better, he can land the jab cleaner, but he's also prone to nights where he's a little flat and where yep. he lets himself get outworked in key rounds, as was the case against Castaño last July. Um, I actually rewatched the fight this week. Uh, Showtime produced a really insightful bonus broadcast that's available on YouTube, on demand, etc., with Steve Farhood coming in between rounds to explain his scoring the judges scoring. It's a great way to watch the fight and rescore along with Steve. For what it's worth, I had scored it 115-113 Castaño in real time. I came away with the 114-114 draw watching it this hmm. time. And the scorecard of Nelson Vasquez, the judge who had it 117-111 for Charlo, that was even more objectionable yeah. when you see his scores round by round. He had Charlo up 6-2 to two after 8, which... He was just flat out getting a bunch of rounds wrong. I, I, I know it's subjective and there is no right or wrong, but come on, sometimes there is. And a few of these rounds weren't that hard to score and he got them wrong. Anyway, one thing that really stood out on a rewatch was how good both of them were at stopping the other's momentum. Just when one guy thought he was in control, the other guy would break through with something and flip the way that round was going or mm. force the other guy to go defensive for a bit just when he was relaxing and getting into the groove of his offense. These fighters' styles blend together really well. Um, you know, Castaño, he, he, he's just a tough out against anyone. He even defeated Errol Spence in the amateurs, so he's, he's a bit of a thorn in our buddy Derek James's side. Um <laughs> But, you know, with Castaño, what you see is what you get, pretty much. Charlo, he can go up a level. He can be more consistent from round to round. And also, he said he had back spasms before the first fight. So that adds maybe a little something to the theory that, yeah, he, he is the guy with more room for improvement in the rematch. Uh, and let me throw some numbers at you here, Kieran. Uh, in the first fight, according to CompuBox, Charlo landed 53 jabs to just nine for Castaño. But on power punches, it was 164 to 98 in favor of Castaño. Uh, body punches were almost dead even, 19 for Castaño and 17 for Charlo. Also, Jermel, while not generally considered the puncher of the Charlo twins, had knocked out three straight opponents coming into the first Castaño fight and has scored 13 knockdowns in his last 10 fights. So break it down a little for me stylistically. Who does a boxing match favor? Who does a brawl favor and any hunch whether this will be more boxing or slugging? Oh, a brawl favors Castaño um, for sure. And unless it's a brawl from mid range, if you know what I mean, if, right. if Charlo's able to establish the jab with, with real effectiveness, if he's able to keep Castaño at mid range and boy, if ever there was a fight that called for that really good, strong, jab to the chest that we always talk about the George Foreman love, right. this would be it. Um, and then if he's able to like rake him with uppercuts and straight power punches every time Castaño gets past that jab and comes inside, well, it might still devolve into a brawl, but it's a very different kind of brawl. And if Castaño is able to dictate the distance, get his head on Charlo's chest and just fire away. Um, distance is key here. Ring generalship is really key to this fight, especially for Charlo. He has to control the distance and he has to find a way to sort of prevent Castaño from getting off 
to prevent him from getting close and to limit his output. Um, he needs to maintain or even increase that statistical lead in jabs while significantly reducing the deficit in power numbers. But that's a lot easier said than done when you're up against a man with Castaño's skill, strength, and engine. And it's a lot easier to do theoretically in rounds one through six than seven through 12. Uh, Charlo isn't always a huge output kind of guy, but I don't think he necessarily has to be. He just needs to land cleanly enough with enough power to force Castaño to think and wait, which is the one thing that Castaño absolutely doesn't want to do. Is it more likely to be more boxing or slugging? You know what? If I tell you that, it might give a hint as to how <laughs> okay. I think it's going to go. So we'll, we'll come back to that. All right, we'll, we'll table that one. That. All right. Uh, but you gave me some numbers. Here's another one for you. Uh, this will be Jamel Charlo's 15th appearance on Showtime. And in the co-feature, we have a fighter who's only 24 years old and is about to fight on Showtime for the eighth time already. I am talking, of course, about your fellow Pennsylvanian, your fellow Philadelphian even, Jerome Boots Ennis the welterweight mega prospect turned contender who boasts a record of 28 and 0 26 KOs with one no decision he meets undefeated Custio Clayton of Canada who is 19 0 and 1 with 12 KOs and who should also be familiar to Showtime audiences due to his 2020 draw against Sergei Lipinets who just happens to have fought Boots as well and it's stopped Lipinets in 6 rounds last April uh, you threw those Charlo knockdown numbers at me a few minutes ago 13 in his last 10 fights Boots has scored 20 knockdowns mm. in his last 10 fights. And if not for the head clash, no decision against Chris Van Heerden, he'd have 18 straight KO wins. Um, he's still never been taken past the sixth round. All right, look, a lot of numbers there. Um, looking at those dominant numbers, looking at the results against common opponent Le Pignettes, does that tell us everything we need to know about this matchup, or is there more to it than meets the eye here? Interesting question. Um... I think the numbers and the respective results against Lipinets tell us most of what we need to know. They tell us Boots is a huge favorite and should be, but there's a little more than meets the eye with Clayton. This is a guy who fought in the Olympics for Canada in 2012 and who has been described as the best Canadian amateur boxer of his generation. And you look at the fact that he's 34, he's a full decade older than Ennis, and you might assume he's a guy who's on the downside, but He's a very young 34 because he didn't turn pro until he was 27. In short, he's the kind of fighter who would be a really stiff test for most up and comers. <laughs> but as we've said, and as many of our interview guests over the last couple of years have said, Boots Ennis isn't your average up and comer. We've had people suggest he could beat Bud Crawford or Errol Spence right now. We've had people predict he'll be pound for pound number one someday. He's a really special talent, uh, and those numbers that you rattled off support that knockout after knockout after knockout, in some cases against fighters no one else could knock out. Mm -hmm. He has this rare power, but he also has almost Roy Jones-like athletic fluidity mm -hmm. to go with it. Uh, and, oh, by the way, he switches to southpaw about as effectively as anyone in the sport other than maybe the aforementioned Bud Crawford. But uh, there is one useful detail about Clayton's fight against Lipinets, he finished strong. He won four of the last five rounds on my scorecard. Now that's just one fight, not a huge sample size, but you look at his physique, you know that this is a guy who's in great shape. So if he can get boots into the second half of the fight, that's a big if. Nobody else has done it yet. But if he can get him into round seven, eight, nine, it could get interesting. 
Ennis will be in territory he's never been in before against a guy who maybe does his best work in that territory. But we'll see if Clayton can even get out of those early rounds. No, Nobody has done it yet, getting past the midway point. No. All right, so, so far we've talked about a fighter in Charlo who's fighting on Showtime for the 15th time and a fighter in Ennis who's on the network for the 8th time. Our opening bout is a clash of two 122-pounders making their Showtime debuts. It's another chapter in the great Mexico versus Puerto Rico rivalry as Kevin Gonzalez of Mexico, 24-0-1 with 13 KOs, 24 years of age, takes on Emmanuel Rivera of Puerto Rico, age 32. He's 19-2 with 12 KOs, and both of those losses were by decision and were debatable. Both fighters are southpaws, even if only one of them is actually a natural lefty. What can you tell us about Gonzalez and Rivera to introduce them to the Showtime audience? And any thoughts on the style matchup here? So Gonzalez is not just from Mexico. He's from Culiacan, hmm. the home of the famous Julio Cesar Chavez. Uh, and he is his whole team, in fact, is very close with, with Chavez. Um, every single one of his 25 pro fights to this day has been in Mexico, 22 of them in Culiacan, where Chavez's brother is head of the boxing commission. Pause to allow space between lines to be read. Um, only nine of his opponents have had winning records. Um, as you mentioned, he's a southpaw. He's the one who's the natural righty, whereas Rivera is naturally left-handed. Um, as for Rivera, as you mentioned, both of his losses were by debatable decision. One against Nate Green in 2017 was so bad on TV, the commentators had him winning 78-73 in a fight in which he scored a knockdown. He walked away from boxing for four years. Um, and he's come back and he's had a, a, a couple of wins under his belt since then. Both men like to brawl. Rivera's manager even admits that he's actually not much of a boxer, that he just likes to get in there and get into fighting. And that's very similar, uh, actually, to, to Gonzalez. So neither man, despite that, has ever been down. I don't think there's going to be a lot of feeling out here. Hmm. This is going to be an action fight. From beginning to end, you, you you put in Mexico against Puerto Rico. You, you put in the fact that both these guys have a lot at stake. They're both trying to make a name here. Uh, this should be a very entertaining start to the broadcast, I think. All right. Uh, well, let's uh, let's get to our predictions for this card, and uh, we will start with that Gonzalez Rivera matchup. Uh, you are leading by a healthy thirty-one to twenty-two margin, Kieran, in our picks competition. It's your turn to pick first this week. So, who you got in Gonzalez versus Rivera? It's a tricky one because I don't really know a lot about either man other than what we've read in the notes and, and from looking around online a little bit. Um, but I just have a little bit of a sense here that Gonzalez, even though he's the younger guy and you figure if there is an A-side here, it's probably him. But I have a feeling that he's not as good as his record suggests, particularly when you look at the quality of opposition that he's faced. And that Rivera is better than his record suggests, um, particularly given that, as you said, both those two losses of his are at best debatable. I do think it'll be a fun fight. Both guys are action fighters. Both guys appear to be durable fighters, but I expect the shorter Rivera to be the one to step inside, maybe get onto Gonzalez's chest a little bit. And I think he might be the one who's fighting as if his career depends on it. And to some extent on one, you know, in terms of getting invited back onto Showtime, maybe it does. I, I'm not, don't know that Gonzalez will be fully able to handle that smoke. That said, it will be close, but I think it'll be a split decision. But for once, a tight call will go Rivera's way. Okay. All right. You've uh, opened the door a little bit for me to make up a little bit of ground or 
fall a little further behind. Um, there is very little video of these guys. I actually couldn't find any of Rivera other than him hearing the decision read in his controversial loss to <laughs> Nate Green, but uh, couldn't find any ac- uh, video of him actually in the ring in action and only found two fights of Gonzalez's. As you said, we're hearing word that Rivera is a, a, a come-forward brawler type and not a very slick boxer. Gonzalez does appear as build a compact little slugger with a nice inside uppercut. So, yeah, this could be the kind of show-opening rumble that you dream of. Mm. I just have to make an educated guess here. You said Gonzalez is sort of set up as the A-side here. He's the younger guy. He has no losses on his record. You kind of figure it's his fight to lose. So with only very modest conviction, I'm going to say Kevin Gonzalez by same result as you. Just going the other way. Kevin Gonzalez gotcha. by split decision for me. Uh, next up, uh, Boots Ennis versus Custio Clayton. Not quite as hard to pick a winner here. Clayton's a good fighter, but come on. I'm not trying to lose this picks competition. Might seem like I am based on my results this year, but trust me, I'm not. Uh, So the pick is Ennis. The pick is Ennis by knockout. And I can see Clayton getting into the second half of the fight. He's he's solid. He's sturdy. He has that amateur pedigree. So I am going to say that by a slight margin, he takes Ennis deeper than anyone else has. I'll say Boots KO8. Very close uh, okay. to, to what I've got here. And I almost feel bad saying this because Christio Clayton's a fine boxer. He's powerful. He's got, as you mentioned, he's got good boxing skills. He's got a good defense. He's a tough nut to crack. It, it, it sounds dismissive, but it's because, as you said, he's in with Jerron Ennis. Clayton's a good boxer. Ennis is a generational talent, or so it appears. Clayton may have been as equal or more in their amateur days, but as a professional, there's just no comparison. I agree with you that I think Clayton will take Ennis deeper than he's been before as a pro, but I could see Ennis just spearing him with his jab. I think the uppercut's going to be a big weapon. Uh, I see Ennis dropping him a couple of times, and then eventually, you know what, I think the counter to your point about you know, Clayton being strong in the second half of the fight is by the time we get into the second half of the fight, Clayton's going to have had quite a bit taken out of him already. I'm going to give him one more round of credit than you. Okay. I, I have NSKO nine in this. All right. So if it does at least get to eight, that'll be an exciting sweat to see whether he gets out of the eighth round. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, which brings us to the main event, uh, Charlo Castaño two. Um, like I said, I'd rather... I deliberately stayed away from predicting whether it be more brawling than boxing because that flags a little bit how I see the result going. There are a couple of things affecting my pick here. Um, One is that, as you indicated during the breakdown of the fight, Charlo does theoretically have more room to improve here. Um, We do know pretty much what Castani is going to do. The question is whether he can do it as well or any better than he did it last time. And the other thing that's factoring into my consideration here is the fact that Charlo finished the first fight the stronger. As you noted, he swept the final three rounds on all all cards, which suggests that while it took him some time and it was hard work, he did eventually figure out the adjustments he had to make. So I think it will actually start out as a bit more of a boxing match. I see Charlo using his range of movement to frustrate and befuddle Castagna a little bit. He might even score an early knockdown. Um, he did hurt Castagna early in that fight, as you mentioned. I can see Castagna as he's trying to get in, walking into something, but he'll bounce back up Castagna, I think. I actually envisage the mirror image of the first fight, in a sense, in that I, I see Charlo 
probably winning that first half of the fight, but Castanio's just not going to go away. He's just going to keep coming and keep coming. And he's going to be the one coming on strong down the stretch because Charlie will have used up a lot of energy, keeping him off and building up a lead. But I think that the gap will be too big to bridge and Charlie will wind up, assuming that he does score that knockdown that I talked about, a 115-112, 116-11-ish unanimous decision winner. Okay. Um, Rewatching their first fight really helped crystallize this pick for me. Charlo can hurt Castaño. I'm not so sure Castaño can hurt Charlo. And Charlo really did find another gear in the final three rounds of the fight. There's something for him to build on there. But Castaño is relentless and he's smart and he throws the shorter punches. He will always be a pain in the ass for Charlo to fight unless Charlo should happen to hurt him early and get him out of there, which is possible, but is not my pick. Uh, I could actually see this looking a lot like the one other rematch on Charlo's record against Tony Harrison. Hmm. That was a close, tough fight until Charlo broke through late and hurt Harrison and forced the stoppage in the 11th round. I'm going to go with history repeating. Tough fight, back and forth, in the vicinity of even on the scorecards. Then Charlo breaks through and hurts Castaño in the 11th. I'm thinking maybe with a left hook he doesn't see, and Castaño has stopped on his feet. Charlo, TKO, round 11. So we've got some real movement potential here. Right? We have not completely agreed on any of those three, I think. So we have there not. We go. So it's, only, it's only May, but there's a little bit of uh, make or break for me with this card. <laughs> we'll see. We'll yeah. see. Long way to go. Um, there are several other televised cards on Saturday, although it's possible fight fans won't actually be overly intrigued by any of them. Um, two of the cards are like Charlo Castaño 2 in California on DAZN from Ontario, California. Undefeated light heavyweight Gilberto Zerdo Ramirez meets Germany's Dominic Bussell. And in Inglewood, Sergei Kovalev returns to the ring as a cruiserweight against unbeaten Turvel Pulev. And then, very much not in California... In Dubai, we have Floyd Mayweather's exhibition bout against Don Moore. Eric, is any of this priority viewing for you? I can tell you one thing definitely isn't priority viewing. That's this <laughs> Mayweather thing. Uh, it's on pay-per-view. Uh, if you want to spend your money to watch it, that's up to you. But me, nope. Uh, the interesting conversation would be how many dollars you'd have to pay me to watch it. Uh, somewhere <laughs> around 50 maybe. I don't think I'm watching it for less than that. Um Anyway, nothing much to say about Ramirez versus Bosell or Kovalev Pulev. They don't do anything for me. I'll check out the highlights Sunday morning probably, but no way in hell I'm flipping away from the Showtime card for either of those. I will say some interesting last names on the Kovalev Pulev undercard. Um, Tervel Pulev's brother, Kubrat, is in the co-feature. Evan Holyfield is on the card in a six-rounder. And not one, not two. But three sons of Fernando Vargas will be in action on the oh, wow. card. And man, that's weird for me because I met the older two when they were babies. And <laughs> now they're all pro fighters. Uh, the third son, yeah. Emiliano, is making his pro debut on this card. So um, I guess credit to whoever organized this undercard for figuring out a decent hook, at least. But uh, but all in all, the Showtime card isn't facing any real competition on Saturday. All right. All right, let's get to another round of America's favorite new game show, Make the Match. Um, As this isn't one of our overly long hour and 15 minutes plus kind of episodes, I I figure it's a a good spot for a quick game of Make the Match. And it's my turn to name a fighter and your turn, Kieran, to play matchmaker on the spot. Um, As a reminder, you can give two answers, the opponent you'd give him as his matchmaker and the opponent you'd want to see him face as a fan. Now, so far... 
we've assigned each other young fighters, guys on the way up, more or less, looking for the right progression fight. I'm going a slightly different direction here. Not a guy on the way down, necessarily, but a guy who has probably peaked, who just challenged for the championship and lost. And the question is, where does he go next? The boxer is Dillian White. Uh, he's not getting the rematch with Tyson Fury, push or no push. Um, everyone else, though, is on the table. So, Kieran, take a look at the heavyweight division and what the options are. And for Dillian White, make the match. Okay. Interesting. Let me, I'm going to pull up a couple of uh, rankings here, the box rec ones and the transnational boxing ratings. Let's see where he sits right now. So he's had two shots at that brass ring now, and he's fallen short. And then, of course, he, he split those uh, two fights with Povetkin. So what does he want to do? What's an attraction for him? him i'm guessing he probably does not want he doesn't want to put himself in a situation yet i think where he's facing down the young gun so i mean like for example joe joyce it looks like he's going to face off against joseph parker if that weren't going to happen white would be an interesting fight for him but i mm -hmm. wonder if that's something that dillian white would want to do like if i were a fan mm -hmm. maybe that might be what I would pick, like I would say, you know what, I would really like to see um, somebody like a, a, a Joe Joyce up against Dillian White, something like that, or a Daniel Dubois against, mm -hmm. Dillian, you know, Dillian White. That would be interesting. Yeah, you know what, as a fan, I'd be pretty intrigued to see how Daniel Dubois is doing um, uh, on his road back from from Joe Joyce, and I would not mind seeing him up against Dillian White. So that's my fan pick. Um, would be Daniel Dubois against Dillian White. I don't think if I'm Dillian White's people, I necessarily want to do that because I don't know that there's an awful lot of money in it. I think I probably want to pick someone who's a pretty good name who I could feel pretty confident about having a shot at beating. What's Luis Ortiz doing hmm. these days? What is he up to? I feel like he had a fight recently or was in yeah, I consideration. Think I think he scored a win. Uh, not a Charles Martin yeah. earlier this year. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting fight. And also Ortiz is, uh, is a name, mm -hmm. right? He's actually known. So, mm, yeah, maybe, maybe I might go looking for somebody who's a decent name, but is probably also himself you know, gone past his peak a little bit and, you know, he's what, 72 years old. So he's, he's vulnerable. If I were Dillian White's people, I might look at something like a Luis Ortiz fight. Whereas if you win that, that's pretty credible and you've got to feel pretty good about winning that. And that's going to keep you in the heavyweight rankings. If I were a fan, I wouldn't mind seeing, seeing him up against somebody like Daniel Dubois and seeing if Dubois is back, you, you know, pushing for the top again. So those are my, those are my choices off the top of my head. What about yeah, you? Those are, those are pretty strong. And it's funny for the fan perspective who you want to see him against. I had the exact same two names come to my oh, mind really? first, Joe Joyce oh, and okay. Daniel Dubois, just, you know, the, in, in the UK, those are big fights, sellable fights, uh, 50, 50 ish kind of fights in both cases. So those would really interest me as a fan. Um, I hadn't thought about King Kong Ortiz. Um, the, I'll throw a name at you that if, if I'm the matchmaker and the goal is to make a fight that I'm fairly confident Dillian White wins, but it's not against a total nobody, 
I was thinking maybe the other direction, instead of taking on a, an aging veteran like Luis Ortiz, maybe you pick off a, a guy who's kind of on the way up but been exposed a bit already, F.A. Ajagba. Someone like that could get mm. be a nice win on Dillian White's record right now. Yeah, that is actually, yeah, that's actually a, a really good one. Yeah, interesting. Yes, I, I would probably favor White in that one too, so... Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting that we both have the exact same names there. <laughs> yep. so, yeah. All right, good stuff. Uh, once again, the Make the Match delivers uh, for the people there. Uh, let's move along now to the news. And in our main event, it's the retirement of a British fighter that I am inclined to believe could be permanent more than is the case with Tyson hmm. Fury. Uh, on Friday, Kel Brook told the Sunday Telegraph, quote, I've had a long chat with my family and my parents, and it's over for me. I'll never box again. Uh, Brooke is 36 years old. He has a record of 40 and three with 28 KOs. He stopped Amir Khan emphatically last time out, going out on a high note, if indeed this is the end. Kieran, if Kel Brook never fights again, what's his legacy as a boxer look like? He's not an all-time great, but he's an all-time very good. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, look, he fell short in his very biggest fights, but my goodness, look at the quality of his opposition uh, on those nights. Uh, three guaranteed first ballot Hall of Famers, all of whom have the potential to be considered all-time greats. Um, you do wonder how different his career might have turned out to be had he not been so brave in agreeing to jump in and take on Gennady Golovkin when he did. Um, we do want our boxes as our friend Brian Campbell says, dare to be great. Right. But this was almost dare to be reckless. Um, <laughs> even so, he fought well in that fight until Golovkin's strength and skill, you know, undid him and, and literally broke him. Um, but really, you know, even up to that point, it had never quite kicked on his career the way it should have done after his Sean Porter win, which I think remains the seminal win of his career. Obviously, on a personal level, his final win will be the the the, the win that he'll look back on. Um, but he was already a domestic star at that point in 2016. The Porter win perhaps could and should have made him a bigger international one. But look, it was a career that he can be proud of. It, it was an excellent career. He shied away from nobody. Mm. Uh, he did not hesitate to take on the very best. And really, those Golovkin and Brook fights and the damage they did hastened his end. But he will be remembered very fondly, I think, for his skill and for his doggedness and above all, his bravery. Uh, absolutely. Just a, a, a really first-rate boxer, I think. Yeah. Uh, several items on the news undercard. And we start with an in-ring undercard. Showtime has announced the televised fights accompanying Jamal Charlo versus Machet Shulensky on June 18th in Houston. Um, one of our faves, 122-pounder Rice, the Beast Alim, takes on Mike Planilla in the 10-round co-feature. While in the opener, Derek James trained lightweight prospect Frank Martin meets Ricardo Nunez. That one also scheduled for 10. Um, Showtime also announced the fights for the June 10th Showbox on Hall of Fame weekend. Four fights scheduled, all of them eight-rounders. Uh, the main event is in the heavyweight division. Uh, 2020 Olympic gold medalist Bakadir Big Uzbek Jalalov versus Big Jack Mulawai. Because they're heavyweights, you see. <laughs> right. Uh, in non-Showtime fight announcement news, uh, which has also become even sort of more intriguing in the light of Saturday night's mm. uh, result, Artur Beterbiev versus Joe Smith Jr. is official. That will take place June 18th at the Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden. Uh, Jake Paul dropped the date of his next planned fight. Uh, that's August 13th, opponent to be announced. Um, one fight that is off for now is Demetrius Andrade versus Zach Parker. That was coming up May 21st in Derby, England, but Andrade suffered a shoulder injury in training 
so the bout has been postponed. And lastly, the Nevada Boxing Hall of Fame, run by our good pal Rich Murata, announced two classes at once, the 2021 class and the 2022 class, both to be inducted along with the COVID-delayed 2020 class on August 26th and 27th. In the class of 2021, just two names, but they don't get much bigger than these two, Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Roy Jones Jr. The class of 2022 is a much longer list. Kennedy McKinney, Vince Phillips, Iran Barkley, Ray Mercer, Israel Vasquez, Mia St. John, Michael Nunn, Hector Camacho, and Bob Foster, plus non-participants, Gary Shaw and Jerry Eisenberg. Uh, Eric, quite a few odds and ends there. Anything you want to comment on? Uh, yeah, a solid Showtime fights there. Um, that June 18th main event, Charlo versus Sulensky, has taken harsh criticism, and I do think some criticism is warranted there. I also think some people are going overboard. Zelensky isn't a bum, but, you right. know, sure. On, on paper, it's not a great fight. The undercard is solid. We always love a Samurai Salim, and I'm excited to get a good look at Frank Martin because he's a guy Derek has talked up. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure what to expect with the heavyweights on Showbox, but the pedigree is certainly there with the yes. big Uzbek. Um, so it's, as you pointed out, the big, big Uzbek versus big Jack. This should be a nickname versus nickname fight. Someone's big has got to go. <laughs> That would that would get everyone fired up for this. Um, the only other thing I want to comment on is the Nevada Hall of Fame. Uh, some great names there. And we've said this before, but I love that these state halls of fame provide an induction opportunity yeah. for some fighters who don't really have a chance of getting into Canastota. Yeah. Those guys deserve to be celebrated also. Uh, those guys and ladies, uh, in the case of Mia St. John, who kind of started as a sideshow and then turned herself into a decent female fighter, had a respectable career. Anyway, congrats to all the inductees and best wishes to Rich Murata and Michelle Corrales for a big, successful induction weekend in August. Indeed. All right, we finish the show with your next top five assignment, Kieran. And before I reveal the assignment, I have to ask a very important question Mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with boxing, but Mm -hmm. does have something to do with the top five challenge. Are you a Godfather 2 is better than the original Godfather guy, or are you an original Godfather is better guy? I actually go a little bit back and forth. I think, actually, to be honest, that, gun to my head, if I had to... (laughs) Perfect perfect analogy to use for this question, yeah. If I were told to leave the gun, take the cannoli, (laughs) and make a decision, I would lean toward 2. Okay, interesting. Um, Not least because Michael is just peak Michael for the entirety of this movie. And the ending of it, one hesitates to provide spoilers for a movie that's 50 (laughs) years old, but just simply the the, the denouement of that movie is just like, oof, dude, you are cold. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, slightly too. Okay, interesting. So I am an original Godfather guy. I think Godfather 2 is brilliant and is as perfect a movie that a sequel to the godfather could have been but for me the original can't be topped and i get a little annoyed not when i hear someone say they prefer godfather 2 as you just did that's fine but when i hear someone state as if it's fact that the godfather 2 is the go-to example of a sequel that's better than the original I don't know how that became anyone's idea of conventional wisdom, mm. but it did in some quarters. People act like that's something we've all agreed upon. Well, mm. I haven't agreed. Uh, <laughs> so, Kieran, I will not use Godfather 2 as my example for your assignment. <laughs> okay. This is 
the Terminator 2 list, okay? That is the go-to example in my mind of great original, but clearly superior sequel. Now, maybe you're going to disagree right now and tell me, no, Terminator 1 is better. But uh, anyway, I'm not sure if you've quite pieced together yet what your assignment is. Here it is. I want it to have absolutely nothing to do with rematches (laughs) at all. Uh, It does have something to do with rematches. You've figured Ah! out that part. Yeah. So here it is. It's spinning off of Terminator 2 and off Charlo Castaño 2, maybe. That's really the inspiration for this. As we head into that rematch of an excellent fight, your assignment is to rank the top five rematches, um, second fights specifically. Okay, so part twos, not part threes or part fours. Part twos that were better than the original. Um, as is the case with Charlo Castaño, usually you only get a rematch if the first fight was pretty good. So these will mostly be first fight was good, second fight was even better. And, and that is, of course, a relative rarity. You know, a lot of trilogies where... The first fight was great, the second fight was pretty good, and then the third was great again. There aren't as many where the second fight improves on the first, but I've thought it through. There are at least five, probably well over five. They are out there. So I want you to rank them, Kieran. Boxing's all-time greatest sequels where the sequel surpassed the original. And the sequel can be part of a four-fight series. Yes, it doesn't have to end in two. It's just that we're only looking at chapter two as far as these rankings. This is a good one. I'm going to have to do some thinking about this. Normally, like at least something pops into to, to my head when you're making these challenges. And I don't know if it's the same way when, when I... Yeah, know, usually, usually one or two pop into my head immediately. Yeah. Nothing is immediately doing that at this point. Um, and maybe as soon as we stop recording, I'll think, oh, God, no, there's obviously that one. Yeah. But they are out there and I, that is going to require some thought. So that is... Good. I'm glad I have an extra four hours over the course. Of- <laughs> you're going to use every last ounce of time uh, thanks to the travel to Alaska. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. No, that's a good one. And that's going to require some thought. So, uh, yeah. All right. I like that. All right. And if you end up having uh, even additional time and you want to monkey around with a top five uh, movie sequels list too to throw at me you're welcome to i won't stop you from telling me your all-time favorite movie part two i have to head out to hawaii and get like an extra (laughs) hour okay (laughs) wow boy this would be a heck of a trip if you managed to squeeze a little hawaii jaunt in there God, how many how many connections and, and lost bags do you think it's going to take me to get there? The other one that I will throw in there right now, of course, is that is, is that is arguable, but I think less arguable is Empire Strikes Back. I knew I, I knew you were gonna you were gonna say that if you did end up doing a movie list. Yeah, yeah that's uh, you know I, I'm not nearly as passionate about the Star Wars movies as you are, but almost everyone prefers Empire to the original Star Wars. Yep. I think. Yeah. So there you go. Well, All we right. we've we've got them going now. <laughs> We have an online constituency listening to this podcast. On, people online love to argue about things like best Star Wars movies and best Godfather movies. So, uh, But anyway, all right. We've blathered on for too much. This this will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, we will be back next week with our post-fight analysis of Charlo Castaño 2, our dissertations on the godfather part two and the empire strikes back um and uh well, let me think one of the uh, national lampoon's christmas vacation which is arguably is it but that first of all that's not first of all it's not a two that's uh, true european vacation true. is the two in that case uh, but, ah, but okay. no i don't i don't think that, that qualifies that case, in that case it definitely right it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't qualify all right i just thought i'd throw one in there and and do a quick mic drop before we go. But no, we'll be back <laughs> next week with that uh, top five list, with our post-fight analysis of Charlo Castaño. And uh, it says here, much more. Uh, until then, thank you very much for listening. Be safe, 
Be kind and be well.